Welcome to Inside the Vault, a bonus episode that Nick and I will be hosting as a special feature of sorts. We will be sitting down and talking about the episodes that we recorded, and we're breaking them down for you all, because now you get an opportunity to see what we're doing when we're putting these episodes together, and then also you will get an opportunity to hear our raw thoughts on these episodes and the process. And we may also, in between, uh, talk about other news and information out there for those who listen to us, because I know we have a big, wide audience out there who is into the true crime stuff who followed it for years and hell even followed me and nick for years and i know that they might want to hear extra stuff but these bonus features are pretty much going to be for specifically the episodes that we recorded and these will be coming out on either thursday or friday after the last episode of that particular case so with that being said ladies and gentlemen welcome nick back What's up, Nick? As the uh, good old comedian Michelle Wolf says, I'm just chipping away at the old ham. Chipping away at the old ham. Hmm. Very yeah, Wisconsin of you. <laughs> oh, man. So, ladies and gentlemen, yeah, and we're also kind of a little bit more laid back in these episodes, too. So, uh, you'll get an opportunity to kind of really hear us raw. So, uh, <laughs> So yeah, uh, anyways, Nick, uh, so we talked to Stephen Catch again in the last episode of From the Vault as we talked about his, his Aunt Cheryl's case. And that was very interesting. What would what would what do you have to say about this? I will have to say, like, I was personally pretty nervous about interviewing the family member of a victim for the first time, mm-hmm. who also happens to be a member of law enforcement. Overall, like I I did enjoy the process of really, you know, asking some questions that I thought were relevant to the case to see how uh, he had gone through the experience. Of course, they weren't as, uh, I guess he had never met her, of course, but um, just the fact of having a family member um, who is the victim of an unsolved crime, um, I think that really was like a needed experience for me as a podcast host and co-writer and it was it was kind of a really interesting experience to sort of kind of get an idea of what it is for you when you are you know talking to all of these various investigators or family members and observing how how you interacted and and kind of putting me into the frame of mind of what to ask and what maybe is too far to go or <laughs> or that yeah. that sort of thing so yeah and, and and that's the thing too about steve you know you, you also have to remember in this situation steve didn't really know cheryl like i mean there was i i think if i even remember right there was zero interaction between steve and cheryl uh as a kid so like where steve is coming from it's kind of like if i was to sit down and talk about my murder cousins like i wouldn't necessarily feel emotional about it because i didn't go through it but also at the same time i do keep in mind my mom who lived through all that and you know lived through that pain and grief and having to know that she would never have an opportunity to see her sister again so i understand that because you and he even clarifies it in the in the episode steve does that you know he felt the same way as I would feel in that situation where, yeah, he didn't know her. He didn't have the emotional impact that maybe perhaps his father dealt with because that was still his sister. There were still good times, 
between the two of them as kids, you know, some of that stuff comes back to you. And it's like, you can be estranged from your family for so long, but still they were your relatives and you grew up with them. You, you had good memories with these people. Now they're gone and, you know, you can't try to make amends with them. You can't reconnect with them anymore. You can't fix any issues that may have been in the past. And, and that's an unfortunate reality in something like this, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I even remember too, like, as we're recording the interview, I just spontaneously remembered one night years and years ago when I was a kid, my mom getting a phone call from a relative about another relative who was killed in a domestic uh, situation. And mm-hmm. to this day, I've never even found out what her name was or what she looked like. And um, it kind of sort of, it brought back that whole situation, which was something I'd never thought about much after the fact. And it mm-hmm. kind of, it, it was a really kind of an interesting situation and, and to kind of reflect on that and how I felt at that time and compared to how I would react now if that were to happen. So yeah, this was, this was definitely a very interesting and um educational experience you know and i and i agree with that and in fact that it was kind of educational for me as well you know i've been doing research into these kind of cases for years but to actually have someone who's experienced this on the law enforcement side of things to share with us his thoughts as a as a professional uh, other than cheryl's nephew as well you know it's like you know you you learn some things like for instance when he kind of broke into detail about the stress analysis testing, the stress, the voice stress analysis test, you really learn a little bit more about that process because a lot of people don't seem to understand the difference between the polygraph and a CVSA test. So we learn a little bit more about that in this episode. And I thought that this, that was a nice little snippet away from the Mm -hmm. topic to be able to learn more about that because that kind of testing is starting to become a little bit more profound in investigations because, you know, whereas you have a polygraph test where you're strapped into something and blah, 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 whatever, you know, at least you're talking, you can read people's uh, voice waves, see where they're going, see if they might be telling the truth. Because like Steve says, you know, yes, your voice can actually change when you're telling the truth and when you're telling a lie, like your attitudes change, your adjustments change. So, uh, I mean, and that's why I guess there's some people out there who claim to be a, (laughs) a human polygraph because they can tell when people are bullshitting their way through something. And, uh, and, and based on p- previous, you know, off record conversations I've had with Steve in the past, he's a good bullshit detector. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I, I always see a lot of these um, true crime documentaries where they do polygraph tests and uh, innocent people have failed, including, mm. you know, close family members of the victim, parents, and a lot of times the individual who is guilty in the end passes the test with flying colors. And mm-hmm. I always look back and just think, you know, I think if I was ever put into the situation where I would be strapped to a polygraph machine, I would be freaking out and I would, I would more than likely fail just because of how my anxiety would work. And, you know, even, even with, you know, the fact that I medicated now for it and, um, and it, it kind of makes you wonder a lot how, um, 
you know, in the earlier days when polygraphs were probably more, they had been used for years and a lot of people were aware of how prominent they were, despite the fact that they're not admissible in court and that sort of thing. So, yeah. And I, and I think because of the fact that they're not in, they're not admissible in court, uh, that, that's why, you know, things like polygraph and CVSA is more used as an investigative tool mm-hmm. because they, I know they can't use it in court, but also it might help them kind of go into a direction that they need to go into in, a, of in course. an investigative standpoint. Like, for instance, the Dietra McGuire case, you know, you had the boyfriend who claimed he was home all night in that case, only for him to fail the polygraph a couple of days later after the fact that mm-hmm. you know this happened it wasn't like he took the test years later or several years later you know he took it a couple of days later and he failed that test and he's not in jail right now because of course the polygraph is inadmissible but it's given law enforcement officials a strong suspect in that case um and that's something i want to dig into a lot deeper because i've got some thoughts on that case and yeah. <laughs> i mean and, and i presented it to a, a group of people in in live oak florida uh last month and and I, you <laughs> you should have just felt the room shift change like they were like oh yeah that motherfucker is guilty <laughs> <laughs> so uh so yeah like that was it like uh, i mean in that case that's one of those perfect examples of using of the polygraph as an investigative tool. But unfortunately, again, for the third time, it's not admissible in court. So you have to move on to more drastic means like trying to figure out his alibi, his or hers alibi, or uh, trying to figure out if there's DNA in the case, which could also help too. Uh, mm-hmm. lots of things, murder weapon, but at this situation, in both Dietra and Cheryl's case, the murder weapon is most likely long gone, if there was a murder weapon, because we also uh, took a deep dive into possible ways that Cheryl was murdered. And I think the general consensus between the three of us was that Cheryl was probably most likely asphyxiated, or she might have had a medical episode in that situation. Yeah, and a lot of, like, which I didn't find out until only within the last five years is that a lot of times with cases ruled as deaths by asphyxiation, a lot of times it's because there are no signs of violence on the body. And depending on whether or not the state of the state of decomposition has prevented the detection of particular hemorrhages in the eyes or, or trauma to the neck. Um, mm-hmm. It was, I thought that was kind of interesting how, um, there's a forensic files episode explaining that ruling um, asphyxiation as a cause of death is a process of elimination, which I thought was, was, it was a pretty interesting um, statement because uh, in the past I'd always thought there's always going to be concrete evidence that, yeah, this person was stabbed in the chest or there was a gunshot wound to the back of the head or after they re-exhumed this body, they found a small fracture on the back of the head and, blah blah but (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I think that explains why there are so many um, cases where there are skeletal remains found and nobody knows how they died and it seems kind of suspicious because who the hell decides to walk into the middle of woods lie down and die but uh especially when some of your clothing is missing oh yeah yeah and if and if you haven't been dead for a long period of time too 
Mm -hmm. Exactly. And you have to remember, too, this was 10. I think there was like a 10 day period between the time Cheryl went missing and the time her body was found, which in the state of Florida, that's a long time. Mm -hmm. I mean, a long time can cause quick decomposition in just that 10 days alone, because, uh, you know, in some of the episodes of like Crime Time Nerds, they talked about the process of of decomposition. And I know, like, in the first couple of days, it's more discoloration, more just start, you're starting to break down. And then mm-hmm. day three, you're starting to bloat, you're starting to get discolored, you're starting to get insect activity. And I remember you were talking about something in our conversation. And this is actually something we'll be talking about a little bit more in depth with Laura Zen in the future. Uh, we were talking about how like insect activity and decomposition tends to start in a trauma zone. And you, you brought up a good point about, you know, if she had been strangled, we would be looking for two things, decomposition and the hyoid bone being damaged. But it appears, I mean, we didn't have the autopsy report in front of us laid out, but we, I guess there was no indication that the hyoid bone was even disrupted. So we're thinking she was she was probably suffocated in a mm-hmm. different situation here. She wasn't strangled or anything like that. It was probably a suffocation of sorts. Or again, because we don't have a more distinct cause of death, you know, we also knew she had health problems. So it could mm-hmm. have been a seizure. But then again, the question remains, why was she in the ditch on Scrub Pens Road half naked? Yeah, and that's that's another thing that always makes me suspicious if I'm doing some research on doe cases or unsolved deaths where there's maybe the appearance of a natural or accidental death, yet there are some certain circumstances about the disposal of the body, the state of the body and whatnot mm-hmm. that are a little shady. Oftentimes it's because perhaps if they died in the company of somebody else doing illicit things, uh, of course they don't want to be, uh, found out and face charges, which reminds yep. me of a reminds me of a, a case in Ohio of a of a still unidentified girl who died of a drug overdose who was wrapped in a blanket and dumped in the woods. Yeah. And I think we talked about this in the uh, Cheryl Katchigan episode two about uh, about Courtney Dubois. I mean, where she was, you know, I think she was dumped in Georgia, even though she died in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And that's like an eight, nine hour drive. So you know, that, uh, that right there, you know, concealment is the situation mm-hmm. there, but in this situation in, in Cheryl's case, you know, she only was found maybe 20 minutes from where she lived. So s- something happened in the area and, and I'm assuming they didn't find any signs of foul play in her home either. So other than this mysterious car that was there a couple days before Christmas. So that's one of the things that I, questioned about in this episode was that car Mm -hmm. did it belong to the hispanic male that was kind of rumored to be uh the killer in this case like well i i wouldn't even say killer rumored to be a person of interest in this case because this same guy owned a camaro a black camaro with blue and white tags and stuff like that but um you know stuff like that like that was one thing that i was really um (laughs) concerned about until we realized later on down the road that Russell Elwood was living in Sebring, Florida at the time. 
What would you, what would you say to this though? Because I mean, you have so many situations here. You got Cheryl who is found half naked. You know, she's obviously, it doesn't appear that she's been sexually assaulted, but I, I, I mean, and, and again, ladies and gentlemen, you have to remember too, Nick and I, we're not law enforcement. We've never been law enforcement. We don't pretend to be law enforcement. This is just clearly our thoughts based on our research, our studies, because I've went to college for this stuff. And Nick has been, you know, nose deep into these things since he was like 12 years old. So, you know, I, yeah. you know, I, I want to <laughs> clear the air there because I think this is going to be my opinion only. It's like, you have a woman who's laying in a ditch half naked. It doesn't appear she was sexually assaulted, but it does appear that she might've been sexually molested. And then you find her half naked. And then there's apparently bar talk about this woman being murdered by some Hispanic guy driving a Camaro who was roommates with this woman. And then there's a serial killer in the mix here too. It's like, what what would you what do you think of this, Nick? Like, do you think that this could be cause for confusion, or do you think that maybe having a serial killer in the area at the time who did similar things to his victims kind of outweighs that uh, Camaro Hispanic male theory? I think, without a doubt, this is definitely a suspicious death, and the absence of certain articles of clothing um, to me indicates it's actually motivated crime, but. Um, from a lot of other cases that I've I've researched and or otherwise seen on TV episodes and, and etc., um, a lot of times when potential leads surface from a conversation in a bar, you know that can go anywhere. Sometimes it's found to be a very promising and ends up solving the case. Yet there are plenty of occasions where it turns out to be BS or unrelated to the crime in question. Regardless, I still think it's worth looking into both of these potential suspects or persons of interest, I should say, to kind of look deeper into figuring out uh, the circumstances of where were they at the time? Why were they there? What else can we learn about them and, and what could potentially tie them to this crime or exclude them from it? Exactly. And that's one thing is like, we didn't get a whole lot of information about uh, the Hispanic male other than that he had a lengthy criminal record in between uh, Frostproof, Florida and Avon Park, Florida. We didn't have a whole lot of information other than that. And it seemed they were minor offenses too, but, but serious enough to have to give him fingerprints. So uh, that that was one thing that really concerned me was was this guy, and then also you have to take into consideration this fact with with the fact about the guy with the Camaro and all this stuff. That story came out right after the story had hit the newspaper. You have to remember in the newspaper articles they had already talked about where Cheryl was found, how she was found, and stuff like that. That kind of started to mess with the integrity of the investigation by having released all that information. So someone could come forward and spill that same information. However, you know, sure, they did withhold some, some probably some information in regards to the case at the time, but still, that's enough information to kind of question the integrity of the investigation at that point early on, because then you got somebody who wants to come forward and claim, oh, yeah, yeah, I did it, I did it. 
Uh, yeah. And I found, I, I dumped her on scrub pens road and I stripped her, but here's the thing that that is a, another thing you that you have to think about is that they didn't necessarily declare where exactly she was dumped at. That would only be a place where the murderer would know Two, does he have her clothing, the clothing that would, that was missing, like the pants and underwear and stuff like that. So um, you would have to take that into consideration as well. But then, you know, the only other strong candidate, if you were to eliminate the Hispanic male, is Russell Elwood, who some believe is a serial killer who ended up getting arrested and charged with the murder of Cheryl Lewis in Louisiana. And then there were some rumors speculating that he was actually the guy who called into the Howard Stern show and uh, talked about killing numerous women in the New Orleans area and stuff like that. And we'll be actually releasing a copy of that, uh, of that uh, interview that Howard Stern did. So um, yeah, I mean, it'll be, it'll be an interesting one that I think everyone should listen to. It'll be coming out tomorrow on our channel. So go ahead and stay tuned to that because that is very interesting. Um, and I'll provide a little introduction to it. So Russell Elwood, what is your opinion on Russell Elwood? So I think kind of, well, I guess going back to yes. the, the releasing of, of information and then the, uh, the bar talk, so to speak, that sure. happened shortly after the release, you know, that's a major, you know, dig in the investigation because this, you know, despite the fact they are withholding evidence, in the event of somebody slipping up and saying something unreleased that only the killer would know sometimes with certain information, maybe there's a misjudgment in its potential value or, uh, or whatnot. And it's released and, and leads to a false confession or mm-hmm. somebody trying to make themselves look badass in a bar because that's how they get their kicks in life or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and sure. then, uh, you know, going back to the potential serial killer, I think it's definitely something that needs to be looked into, especially since there are similarities in the MO. Yet, one thing I've noticed recently with instances where killers such as Robert Durst, who ended up dying shortly after his conviction a few months ago, along with Terry Rasmussen, who is the prime suspect in the Bear Brook murders, one thing that I have noticed is a lot of people like to try to look at a lot of potential victims right away and to really get into this person was living in this city where it could only just be a coincidence. So it's it's maybe something that perhaps could be taken with a bit of a grain of salt. I think it's still something that's maybe a little more credible than a bar conversation, but that's maybe just a, a rod of caution to keep in mind, at least. This guy was in the area approximately around the same time. He has a history of violence, whereas the Hispanic male, as we discussed, committed crimes that were mostly minor, but enough to get fingerprinted. Yet, as far as we know, he hasn't committed multiple murders, whereas mm-hmm. somebody who has a history of violent crimes towards women being in a potential area within close proximity of where the victim is either found or lives. Uh, it's, it's something that can definitely spark interest and in, yeah. And that. And I know with Elwood, the thing too about Elwood was that, you know, he, he is being looked at as a possible suspect in multiple murders in Louisiana. That's why 
a lot of people are believing that he might have been the Storyville killer, although technically speaking, there's been no proof to credit him to those murders. Uh, there's been no evidence linking him as the suspect in those cases, but he also was in the area at the time, but he was also bouncing in between Florida, Louisiana, and Ohio, and he had spent some time in prison in, uh, in Florida. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that lay out into this, but one big, um, big heartbreaker in this whole situation is that we do find out later on down the road, Russell Elwood died in April of 2014. Uh, I don't know exactly how he died. It was not disclosed to us by law enforcement, but he, but the way the Sergeant St. Laurent had explained it to me was that he was getting ready to take a trip to Louisiana to talk to Russell Elwood. He was trying to arrange it with the prison coordinator over in Angola, which is the main prison in Louisiana. And he was already booking his ticket to go. And so he gets a phone call from the coordinator in Angola. And the coordinator told him that, yeah, he died in April of 2014. And uh, you can't talk to the dead. You can't get any information out of the dead. So that was very, very concerning. But I'm hoping, I, I hope that there's some evidence that can kind of lean into Elwood as being the suspect, in this case, physical evidence. But until then, I mean, it's going to be an interesting waiting game. Uh, and, I, and that's the thing is like, this happens. I mean, when you have suspects that have died, but they could still be credited with multiple murders, that can be uh, concerning, to, be, to say the least. Yeah, and this is one of the most frustrating situations that can happen in a case like this where there, there's just enough factors that seem to that they could point to this certain individual, but there's no physical evidence. Yet at the same time, sometimes just having enough pieces of the puzzle leading to an interview with the person of interest can resolve the case. And mm -hmm. obviously it's not possible in this situation. Right. And becomes a waiting game. Sometimes evidence can surface that proves to be of value that can either uh, prove the guilt or exonerate the individual in question. Yet, uh, a lot of times there just solely isn't enough information to really credibly point the finger of guilt. I agree with that. Yeah, just there's not enough in this situation right now to uh, lead us into that direction with Elwood right now. But I'm hoping at some point there will be a uh, a situation, but I do know that they're also looking at the Hispanic guy again to make sure that he is indeed not a suspect. They're trying to locate him, but way it sounds, it's like uh, it's going to be difficult for them to locate this guy unless he's already been deported already, especially if he's been deported. He might be a hard person to find. So, but yeah, I mean, but other than that, this has accumulated this episode that we did on Cheryl accumulated into a really big episode that. We were able to get so much from the fact that we had cooperation of the sheriff's office and we had cooperation from Cheryl's nephew, who essentially relayed the stories about Cheryl from his father. So, um, you know, we got a lot of help in this episode and we turned that like two minute read, maybe less than two minute read into two full episodes on this case. And and, and that and this is a personal message to those who are in true crime podcasting, who aspire to be true crime podcasters, that 
you have to do your homework in these situations. There might not be a lot of information out there, but it's your duty. It's your job as a podcaster and as a journalist to expand on that story, to share the story, share both the human side, the crime and the investigative side of this, of this uh, case, because if we don't, I told this to the group in live Oak a while back, these people become forgotten and you throw away a very, very old case out the window. I mean, and that's what happened in some of these cases here in Columbia County, where some of these older cases got basically lost to time. But with that, with time came people who came forward and started reviving the discussions on these cases. And that's why we do what we do. We just don't want to forget about mm -hmm. these cases. That's why we expand on them. I mean, Cheryl's case is a perfect example of that. I Absolutely. Because, um, she she mattered. She was a victim, and her case is still unsolved 26 years later um, as of this recording. She died uh, six months before I was born, and I'm I'm 26 now, and that that's a long time. I mean, despite the fact that a lot of people still consider me a kid, practically, but yeah. um, that's what I really enjoy about some of these cases that we've done for episodes is that you really can't find a whole lot of information that is available online. We really have to dig and get some of that old archived information, whether it's on archive.org or newspapers mm -hmm. or to go directly to law enforcement themselves or mm -hmm. uh, family members. And in this case, of course, with Steve being both, <laughs> yeah. which was, which was an interesting situation, but mm -hmm. um, I'm glad that we were able to at least expand Cheryl's story and to really bring up the discussion of, what could have happened, certain possibilities, and to ultimately just bring out more information about who she was and how she lived her life and that she she shouldn't be forgotten just because she's got a, a couple of paragraphs on a sheriff's office website. And yeah, I think that's that's something that's really important that that we do and that a lot of other podcasters do as well is to really try to put out as much as they possibly can instead of kind of skimming through the internet and then to look for potential cases to cover and then see, oh, there's really nothing available on this case. On to the next. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. I mean, and that's just it. Unfortunately, you know, when you have podcasters, I'm not going to name specific podcasters out there, but I'll just put, put it out there this way. Podcasters that's gotten too big for their britches, the ones that are in it for the money, they, they're looking for interesting cases that, will make them money that will put money in their wallet us on the other hand i don't give a shit about getting rich off this. i'm not planning to get i'm not planning to retire on podcasting money in fact i'll even borrow a, a phrase from detective william springer you know this is technically slave wages so i mean <laughs> i mean i'm not i like literally this episode alone will probably get me a hamburger and a coke in, in today's monetary value. So, I mean, and that's the thing is I'm not looking to get rich off this or get famous. And Nick, I know you're not. I mean, you've been doing this for years, especially considering your work and unidentified wiki. You know, we're not looking for all that. And the thing is, is that we'll, we'll take any case big or small as long as we can easily get that information. And if we can't get it easily, we'll exhaust all our leads before we say, well, 
there's not much we can do about it. We'll have to just, I mean, we'll have to, you know, yeah, unfortunately there are times when you have to go to the next case because you can't find nothing, but it doesn't mean that the information is not out there, especially if you live in your local area, you know, just because your, your paper is not in newspapers.com or Google newspapers, go to your library or go to your college. They usually will have like microfilm slides of your local paper. Go through that, go through all the articles and that date. It's easy as that. I know some of you podcasters don't want to leave your house. So I get that. I totally get that. But hey, look, we have to do what we have to do to get the story out there. But other than that, though, you know, kind of wrapping up the conversation on Cheryl, though, like this was definitely a case that I really, I really wanted to cover, but just because simply of how obscure it was and how un, how relatively unknown it was to our true crime community. And I think now with, you know, our followers, our fan base and their, them sharing the, the case around, you know, I think that that's, this is a good opportunity for Cheryl's case to be out there a little bit more. And I certainly know that the Highlands County Sheriff's Office appreciates the attention that we've given it today. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. I think that bringing unknown cases like this, or little known as I should say, it really helps bring awareness to more victims that aren't just these 20-something blonde women who could be supermodels who mm-hmm. vanish and are then found a few days later, and that everybody deserves to have their story told regardless of who they are, where they came from, how they lived, what they looked like. Mm-hmm. So I'm thankful that we got the opportunity to, to share this story and to, to obtain the information we did. And, and hopefully good things will come of this. I mean, there's no way to really know, but hey, we do what we can and see what happens. That, that's the nature of the podcasting business. You know, Absolutely. Just- I'm glad that we had an opportunity to really dissect her case and talk to Steve. And, uh, and I'm uh, really glad that I got an opportunity to have Steve on here. Normally we're talking in passing or, you know, kind of conversing about something about one of the local cold cases and that's it. But I'm glad that Steve actually got an opportunity to sit down with us, talk about it. And we even enjoyed about a 15 minute long conversation with him before we had to rush off to talk to Laura Zen. So Mm -hmm. Um, which uh, it would have been fun to talk with Steve a little bit longer because he, he is a cool dude. And absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we appreciate Steve for uh, helping us out with this project. And again, we really appreciate the Highlands County Sheriff's office for their participation and getting the information out there and helping us along with that. Uh, Sergeant St. Laurent, uh, Lieutenant Kramer. Uh, thank you guys for helping us on this episode of from the vault and so next week on the, well, I should actually say not next week, but the next episode of Inside the Vault, it'll be after we conclude the double episode with Sergeant William Springer of the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. And Gwen will join me on that episode of Inside the Vault because you didn't have an opportunity to join us for uh, Sergeant Springer's interview, which was a very good interview. I'm, so, I'm, I'm sad that you missed that. Yeah, I'm I'm bummed that I had to work my fucking day job. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to maintain a very, you know, civil and professional. <laughs> no, 
persona here. Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. yeah, y'all, y'all should see my grinder conversations. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, like we we had a really, really deep conversation. And next week, when you guys listen to the episode on Sergeant Springer, and we talked to him in that first episode alone, we talk about his career and his time at the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office. You got to remember, this guy retired in 2010, only to come back a few years later and just just to be there to help with their cold cases. Like, this man is awesome. Like, he is, in my opinion, he's like up there with the likes of like Wyatt Earp and and, and Doc Holiday and stuff like that. Like he is up there in, in those legendary uh, detectives and people. Uh, Elliot Ness is another good one. So Joe I Kenda. mean, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, so we really appreciated his time. And we, I know we had to jump through some hurdles just to get him on, but it was well worth the hurdles. Um, uh, but yeah, that first episode, we'll be talking to him about his career. That second episode, we'll be going more deep dive into some of the cases he covered. One of them was a uh, one of them was a, a, a murder for hire case that he solved in the 80s. Uh, and then we had a missing person case that he worked and a couple of homicide cases that he worked in. He was um, in the news recently because of his coverage of identifying Suzanne Poole as the singer island jane doe a case that you and i covered in the first season well actually it was the second season of uh, of uh true cold case files yes and yeah and that was that was the very first episode i joined you on too as it just was. a random guest it was it was and so yeah and that's the thing it's like uh in this conversation we have about suzanne too he does kind of reveal new things about this case that have not been in the media yet that have not made it out there so all i can say is listen to that episode listen to both episodes and um you'll get some insight into uh that case because we also kind of dig into gerard schaefer a little more about why they believe gerard schaefer was the one who killed her so yeah i mean that's all i'm, I'm gonna say right yep. there on that um but other than that yeah we'll we'll be back with inside the vault with gwen uh in a couple of weeks and then after that, you'll be catching me and Nick again on Inside the Vault as we talk about Laura Zen and her visit to the studio. So that'll be a fun conversation. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. I cannot wait for that one. Oh, yeah. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for listening to Inside the Vault. This is Jason. And I'm Nick. And we'll see you on the next episode of Inside the Vault. <laughs> I still right. wish you would have gotten a photo of us walking in, in or out of that that uh, theater doorway. For, in oh, the yeah. I, I wish we would have done that. I totally <laughs> forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, I did too. That would have been that would have been like great cover art. <laughs> yes, it would have. That would have been cool.